Oh, not to mention Justin H. Min, who, you know, if you're a fan of Umbrella Academy, you, you've seen his face. You know who he is. Um, we should probably mention Yang and after Yang. Yeah, yeah how can we not? <laughs> Sorry. Hey, it's the last point because it is we're saving the best for last. But. Yes. And welcome to episode 42 of Plot Devices. We've time traveled. It's 2023. We've made it to either year three of the podcast we're clicking on RSS or year two if we're going by anniversaries. Whatever. We've time jump. It's, you know, the end of the holiday era. Uh, this is basically a, a giant beach filler episode of our anime-like show uh, before the giant finale, of course, when we're going to be reflecting on the year that was. I am, of course, your host, uh, Brandon King, alongside Mike, dapperly dressed, you can't see him, co-host Noah Guzman. Noah, how is your holiday? How do you feel about being in a beach episode? It's not the type of episode you want to press skip on, okay? This is not a filler episode, although we are filling some gaps that we felt existed in this year of movie selection. So me and Brandon, we do what we can to cover as much as we can, but you know how much content releases week after week, every now and then some movies slip. And that's really what the purpose of this episode is. Brandon selected some films, I did too, and that's what we're delivering to you here. And speaking of, you know, my dapperly dressed self, it's because I'm wearing this red fitted shirt and i told brandon top of the of our meeting today i go i feel like the crimson chin and then he made the perfect um cosplay suggestion of telling me that i can actually pull off a uh brandon go ahead and tell me the name again it was the flash but a certain flash yeah if any of you are familiar with uh jay garrick the uh jsa 40s era flash and you look him up that's basically noah right now but without the hat yeah give me the hat and the costume's done okay i got the red shirt that's 70 percent of the costume as Noah said, uh, this is our big catch-up episode. We do like one or two of these every year. We did one about four months ago for our one-year anniversary. We're hoping to keep doing this in the new year. Uh, we're going to be talking sci-fi movies, fantasy movies, whatever the heck Morbius is. We'll get to that. We're going to start off by capping off the holiday season with uh, Sean Anders' latest movie, Spirited. Uh, Noah, this is a Christmas carol, but it's not really a Christmas carol. Uh, tell people about it. This is an Apple TV Plus original film where spirits, or I'm going to call them ghosts for the sake of storytelling, ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future visit real-life people in an effort to affect positive change. Here, Ryan Reynolds plays the less-than-honest marketing guru who is very much a Weasley type of character. He does have a ward that he is uh, kind of a guardian with, along with his brother, um, this niece is from his late sister who passed um, in some time before. And then the other primary character is going to be Will Ferrell. He returns for another holiday, a very memorable feature as he is the ghost of Christmas present. And he ends up spending a lot of time with Reynolds' character, uh, walking him through how his life will be if he continues on this route that he is on. So I say this is an original film, but Brandon is right. This is a Christmas carol. Um, it is a Christmas carol and it is a musical and it is a musical that is very aware of itself. Okay. You're talking song numbers that break out and <laughs> leading up to that big moment, you have characters in the scenes going, Oh, it, the, the big numbers coming, isn't it? Oh boy, not another song. So if you're kind of that musical watcher where maybe you've been in a room with others who are big, you know, thespian fans. And you're like, oh boy, why are we watching another musical? <laughs> this is the musical for you. I think this is a musical for non-musical fans or 
you know, fans like myself who always uh, give their attention to the new musical that's out. You know me, last year, Tick, Tick, Boom was the number one that I had placed. Um, I'm not saying this is my number one for the year, but just to start on that note, I was I was impressed with how this film really formatted itself. Uh, you've got executive producer Will Ferrell. I love that he's attached both as a leading role and behind the scenes. And this comes from director Sean Anders. Um, if you're familiar with some of Sean Anders' work, he has written and worked with Ferrell before with Daddy's Home, uh, Daddy's Home 2, We're the Millers. Uh, the list really goes on. This is a director who is very comfortable in the comedy space. And here, I think you can trust it. Uh, we're going to get into how Spirited affected us both. But Brandon, let's start on the musical note. What did you think about this Farrell Reynolds holiday big picture? Well, we should mention on the musical front, uh, this is done by Pisk and Paul, who, of course, are for uh, uh, Greatest Showman and Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, and also, the, speaking of Flash, the uh, Flash musical crossover, which I always find fantastic. I'm mixed on Pisk and Paul, as frankly, I am on this movie and we'll get into it. Um, and they do their usual shtick. Like, if you're a fan of that stuff from Dear Evan Hansen or you know, Greatest Showman, that kind of really big, bold musical number, but very much rooted in, you know, mid-2000s adult contemporary pop sounds. You're going to like this. Like the songs, I will fully admit, those melodies have gotten really engrossed in my ear. Will Ferrell doesn't get enough credit for his singing voice. I've always really appreciated it, even, you know, Step Brothers when he's doing it pretty much for the gag. Um, Reynolds and Octavia Spencer, who we should mention Octavia Spencer is in this as a sort of love interest for Will Ferrell's character, maybe, possibly. Um, and then, you know, they do a good job with it. But Ferrell, I think, in particular, shines in the music sequences. He understands the poise and the grandeur of like playing to the crowd, like minus a specific aspect. And we'll get into it later on, but the musical aspects as a whole, I thought I'm hitting this on that, but I get where they're coming from. If you told me that we were going to get a holiday movie with Farrell and Reynolds and Reynolds was going to be singing and it's a musical, well, you know, doing what he can when he's singing, it was exactly what I expected. I think I wasn't prepared to be blown away by these, you know, highs and lows that were going to be hit by the characters, but to get, Reynolds in a musical alongside Octavia Spencer um, and the numbers that Will Ferrell has. There's a song called, I think, Unredeemable, or maybe it's called Redeemable, but that was excellent. It comes at a wonderful time in the movie where uh, that the, that specific tune does remain in my head. Uh, I'm right there with you, Brandon, that Ferrell doesn't get enough opportunities to showcase this type of talent that he holds. Oh, totally. And look, I'll say this much. Um, good afternoon. Slaps. Good That's afternoon. Funny. It's such a fun middle finger of a song that it's totally the point, but it also, I think, bridges the gaps of the stereotypes that I personally haven't loved Pace Can Paul for. Um, and yeah, like Octavia Spencer gets a really nice number kind of reflecting on her play. For context, she works for Ryan Reynolds' character and she's mixed on the fact that he's basically spreading like this really negative propaganda around the world. You mentioned uh, his niece who plays a really potent role in the movie. That's actually um, Mauro Barkley, who we saw earlier this year in Slumberland. So it's kind of a nice tie back to older episode. And she's quite good in this. She doesn't get a lot to do, but she is kind of, you know, the tiny Tim character of the movie, the, you know, precocious child who is the moral center. But, you know, she does what's necessary. And there's an emotional core to this movie that, I did find really interesting. I don't think the ending really nails it. If we're talking like getting into the plot convenience and stuff like that, I think it lets certain characters off the hook too easily for things that the movie really tries to rectify or like, you know, what is unredeemable? What is redeemable? And I don't think the movie totally lands on its central thesis on that. Um, but it does have a center to it that you can get attached to. And like, I, I know a bunch of people who watched it who were really emotionally gravitating towards those, uh, those character arcs and those portrayals. So who am I to say like, you know, bah humbug and all that, but like, 
I, I don't know. There's something about it where I felt like it's not as sharp as it could be. And like, that's also to be intended. Like this is Sean Andrews we're talking about. This is a guy who did That's My Boy and the Daddy's Home movies. Granted, he also did Instant Family, which I don't know if you saw. Instant Family was very good. So I was kind of hopeful this could land the mark on that. And it doesn't really get that for me. When I say that he's like this marketing guru, at the top of the film, you're introduced that Reynolds, who plays Clint Briggs, Clint Briggs exists in the, you know, commercial marketing industry where his role is to take, like, looking at a client and the client's com- com- competitors and doing what he can to spread disinformation so that his competitor is looked at as just the the worst of the two options. And then he starts applying that logic to his niece, who is in, I believe, grade school or middle school, and she's running for elementary level student government. She wants to be a part of um, Stugo. And the effort he asks her to take on is to like bash her opponent over social media. And this is an, this is an age where, you know, things that go viral that are very controversial for adults can ruin careers. So when you look at somebody who is a minor and you apply that same level, that same principle, it, it can have, it can have tragic effects to that, to that young person's well-being, And that's really, I think, the thread that's explored with what will happen if he continues down this route um, aspects of his past or details of his past include having a mother who overpromised or having a mother who really manipulated where his hope should be placed. So that's why he only placed hope um, into himself. And there were love interests who had came and gone, but he had never like spread his heart open to more than, than himself. And I think that that's supposed to be the big lesson that he learns in the end, whether he learns that and we feel rewarded for this journey I can't say, but the movie did not end the way I expected. That being said, I still was smiling 90% of the way through. And that's the kind of key thing is that the actual pure chemistry between Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell is really fun. Like they totally nail that bickering back and forth. Like Ferrell is, you know, charming as usual. He has that warmth to him that you just can't help but really fall in love with. Again, taking cues maybe from Elf, you know, his last, you know, big holiday success. But Reynolds... Ryan Reynolds is an a-hole in this, and he is sucking up every, like, campy, borderline camp aspect of it, just going, like, full devilishly charming on the whole thing. Even when it comes to his niece, like, that whole uh, first interaction that he has when he's supposed to be, like, this genuinely, you know, sincere uncle kind of deal, and he talk- he's talking to his brother and, you know, his niece, and it's just coming off as, like, dude, you have no idea how to talk to kids. You have been in your workplace way too long. And I think that is kind of the point of the movie, is that idea of, Work and, you know, the broader scopes and systems that we are in sometimes conflate with our ideas of what is and what isn't. It's not really sharp in that regard, but I kind of appreciate how Reynolds is understanding the bit and just going for it. There is straight up the elf costume in this movie and they walk right past it and Will Ferrell (laughs) is uh, present as he is in the movie, just laughs and is like, you look so stupid, you look so dumb. (laughs) And it's just a nod to the actor's previous work that you can only smile at if you're a fan of the movie, which in my household, we always watched elf. Additionally, I love how this spirit headquarters really like it doesn't just have diversity in there. No, like this entire space is made up of uh, multicultural, uh, multi-backgrounded workers. Um, I like that all the security detail is all, um, they're not even English speaking. They're all like speaking um, Portuguese or French or like these, these 
different headquarters in this headquarters there are different departments who excel at what they do and they all look like different people and so it made me think about you know i did kind of go broader when i was watching this and i was like there's some people who take the stance of like oh my gosh like it's just a movie why do we always have to have like this minority or this thing this thing and it's like because that's how that's how america's look and this is american cinema so why can't we have spaces that reflect who we are and i I really just admired that part and towards the end of the movie yes this is ghosts of christmas christmas past present and future and then they go on to say that when they want to expand this um fantasy headquarters they're going to include hanukkah they're going to include include kwanzaa and i found that just to be like uh something joyous to include yeah, I mean, it's funny because even though I don't know if the themes necessarily land, I do like some of the world building that they craft. Like you see this whole, you know, what I want to describe as like Arthur Christmas, but more business oriented, like the whole expanding of the Santa mythos, even though it's not Santa. But, you know, we've got uh, like Patrick Page, who's an accomplished Broadway actor as uh, Jacob Marley. You've got Sunita Mani from Glow as uh, Christmas Past. You've got Tracy Morgan as Christmas Future. It's a really great kind of uh, murderer's row of supporting players. It provides this really fun atmosphere. Like you see early on how, you know, Clint is able to manipulate these like divine spirits and it's, it shouldn't make sense. And yet somehow it completely does in the context of the characters real quick, because I know we have to wrap up. Uh, I know I wasn't high on the musical stuff, uh, minus the choreography, which is excellent. Chloe Arnold did all the choreography for this and it is spectacular. I love the dance numbers. If you look forward, you know, and you see all the extras, there's so much to actually look at between the set designs, where Sean Anders puts the camera. Maybe I wasn't enthralled by the actual singing and the compositions, but just looking at the screen, I was just like, how are you getting all of this? You're watching and you're just going, oh, damn, like, no, they, this is full out production on the musical scale and all the tap dancing, incredible. Uh, The two actors to mention uh, right before we wrap up is Tracy Morgan as the ghost of Christmas Future. I say Christmas Future, but in the film, it's actually yet to come. Uh, Tracy Morgan just voices that character who looks like, you know, the... Uh, just it looks like death you know the cloaked figure with the skeleton hand always pointing to something and they use that as a gag throughout the film and it works great and then Sunita Mani who plays the ghost of Christmas past uh, she has these hilarious uh, just her character's written so um, hilariously she pulls it off like with with seemingly no effort and that's just uh, credit to the talent that she is um I liked how she was, she was flirty and of the mindset that, oh yeah, he totally wants me. Like that was, that was excellent. I'm going to go ahead and kick off the rating for Spirited and it is going to be for me a seven out of 10. This is an excellent holiday flick. I wish I had watched it around the holiday time just to feel a little bit more of that Christmas spirit. But you know what? Coming off the tail of the new year, throwing this film on, having the joy of Reynolds back on the screen and actually for me, you know, giving a character performance uh, alongside Farrell, who continues to impress. Um, I walked away from this. Yes. Loving the songs. I'm probably going to go to the Spotify playlist and listen to redeemable just to hear, just to hear Farrell and, and Octavia Spencer sing as well. But uh, it's another Christmas Carol story. And if you, like I said, are a fan of musicals or you kind of like deter away from them, know that there's some comedic genius behind this. And if you watch it, I guarantee you'll laugh and it'll be even better with some friends or some loved ones around you. You know what? I'm also going seven out of 10. I was going lower, but I think talking about this made me realize how much just pure fun I was having with it. And, you know, during the holiday season, I think that's incredibly keen for a lot of people I talked to. They've had the same reaction. I wouldn't have seen this unless my mom popped it on when I was at home and I was just like, yeah, I'll watch this. And then, you know, two hours later, I was like, that was totally worth it. Like Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds are a great comedic duo. I would love to see them do more because I think they really bounce off each other really well. We didn't mention it's refreshing to see Octavia Spencer 
being portrayed as a romantic lead, which you don't get to see that often. She totally ups the game on that. Again, the choreography is staggeringly good. Even if I am, you know, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a Scrooge in this case on the actual musical aspects, on like a lot of the story and thematic details, not all of those things worked for me, but just looking at the screen and being engaged with the story, I found more than enough to like. As Noah mentioned, it's streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. It was in theaters for a little bit. I don't think it is anymore. But if you have Apple TV and you want like a kind of late holiday season, you know, jingle jingle fun kind of thing, you could do far worse than this. For our next film on this 2022 catch-up, we are looking towards a streaming platform, Hulu, baby. We are talking Petite Mammon. This is a selection that Brandon brought up to the Plot Device crew. And we're going to go ahead and dive right into what you can expect from this short fantasy film. Brandon's going to tell you all about it. Yeah, so forgive me, my French is bad. So to any of our French speakers, I apologize. Uh, Petite Maman, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, this is the newest movie from Sunis Uh If any of you saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, late 2019, early 2020, this was her. This is her latest movie off of that. It premiered at the Berlin Film Festival back in 2021, got delayed a lot just because of distribution issues. Now it finally got a release in the States uh, this past May. Note, uh, I'm about to describe a pretty substantial plot point in the movie. Noah and I both talked about this beforehand. We both pretty much agree that we can't talk about the movie in a successful capacity without it. So if you don't want to know anything about this movie, just skip to the time codes in the uh, description. There will be just one for our rating, so you have been warned. We follow a young girl named Nelly, uh, played by Josephine Sands. Uh, she is living with her parents in present-day-ish France. They're never really clear, essentially, on what time period specifically. Uh, she's just lost her grandmother and her mother by proxy, her uh, her own mom. She and her parents go to her grandmother's old cottage in the countryside to go clear it out. Nelly wants to basically go out and explore. Uh, her mom is dealing with some kind of illness that is taking her away from the house. We're not really sure why at the start of the movie, but it basically just means that she's with her dad, and, you know, her dad is, you know, he's doing his best, but he's not really there. Anyways... Nelly uh, goes out into the forest. She finds a young girl named Marion, uh, played here by actually Josephine's real-life twin sister, uh, Gabrielle Sands. They both like each other. They're both, you know, these precocious little kids. Uh, but Nelly goes to Marion's house, and she starts to believe, and this is the twist that I was referencing earlier, uh, she starts to believe that Marion is actually her mother as a kid, that they both somehow crossed into each other's timelines, that they're both kind of, whenever they go into this forest or when they leave each other's houses, they kind of, the forest is this weird temporal gap. The movie never describes it this way, but this is kind of just how the story presents itself. From there, we basically have a story of these two kids, you know, going to misadventures. They're kind of uh, reconstructing her mom's old shack or constructing, depending on what time frame you're looking at. They go to explore like these, you know, monuments on the river. They, you know, make pancakes at one of their houses and just have good fun times, but also kind of try and reorganize their own connections to both themselves and their own families. Noah, I want to talk to this because, again, I love Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm relatively new to Skiyama's work. I've seen that and Girlhood as well, which is also really good. And I just heard tremendous things about this movie coming out of the festival buzz. And I kept waiting for it to get a theatrical release and I missed it back in May. You know, as you mentioned, it's barely under an hour. Do you think that was worth the short runtime? Brandon, I will answer your question, but I'm looking at Skiyama's work and I see My Life as a Zucchini. Have you seen that one? That is one of the few animated feature nominations I've missed in the last couple of years. And I'm mad that I didn't know she wrote it. <laughs> well, hey, added to the watch list for the future, right? It's just, it's claim. it looks like it's like an animated flick. So I, I thought to bring it up. Um, the runtime, does it work with this? 
One of the common notes that I always bring up on the pod is going to be runtime. But in our recent coverage of the film Bardo, we had our special guest Carlos Aguilar on the pod, and he really made a point defending that like runtime really should not determine whether you have the interest or the um, appreciation of a film because you can, you know, you it's like you pick and choose which ones you're willing to endure the runtime for. So. Maybe I'll mention it less in 2023. We'll see. But Petite Maman, hour and 13 minutes on Hulu. You sit down for a meal. By the time your meal's done, you're like, oh, I only have like half an hour left. Okay, let me just sit right through it. Um, now, due to its runtime, does it affect the storytelling? I- I'd say, yeah. You know, I kind of went into this film blindly, not even looking up what Petite, Petite Maman meant. Uh, having the French translation now in front of me, it's not much of a spoiler for it for us to mention that it translates to Little Mother. Big shock. Um, <laughs> but that being said, I went into this blindly um, one evening because I knew we were going to talk about it on the pod. And that didn't really work for me. As I was going through the story, I knew that our um, eight-year-old Nelly was going to be our central character. But 20 minutes in, I did find myself wondering, you know, where is this going? So I had to pause. Um, I came back to it the next morning and actually had a summary in front of me. So when I understood that she was going to meet another young girl and they both were going to form a a you know new friendship that could that could have um deeper meaning behind it then i was intrigued and then i was able to watch it and apply a second level of like thought to each scene my notes that i had in front of me were going to be like what's going on because the film does not outright tell you that this is what's happening that there's a slip in time space where these two girls meet and there actually is an encounter with um with you and your parent being the same age and being able to intervene in each other's world. Um, they both live in very similar looking houses, but that's not uncommon even in a neighborhood. You know, neighboring houses will have the same setup. So is that the truth here? It doesn't answer that question for you. Um, coming into the picture, yes, the two actors are twins, but they just have enough of their, of their um, physical features to be different that you do believe for a second that maybe... Um, this is the same actor portraying both of them. And then the credits roll and I knew, oh, okay, no, this is actually going to be two different actors. But this film has no underscore. It kind of forces the viewer to really take their time with this. It's a short film. It has its time to spend with you. And does that work for it? I mean, I say, yeah, this is a film that doesn't have extraordinary setups. Um, we do take half of our time set up uh, or half of our time is spent um, in the neighboring forest. Um, we go to either household. There's a scene in a car, um, but that's pretty much it. The 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 root of the uh, focus and the drama that this film builds is understanding what relationships exist between either child and their parent. One of them, uh, as Brandon mentioned, has a father who is uh, as much there as he can for his daughter while he's, I think, going through some form of grief. And then uh, the other daughter whose mother is around, but is, I think, in a depression or she's um, she's feeling under the weather. Uh, I didn't know what to latch onto from the beginning. Brandon, what really kept you with this film? And also, if you can bring up, you know, what... How did this film pique your interest before you selected it? Well, what initially piqued me was just the critical acclaim behind it. Like, again, it's Portrait of Lady on Fire director doing this really small, you know, Spielbergian coming of age movie with these two little kids just going on misadventures in the forest. And I was like, okay, this might be really cute. And it is. I can totally describe this as cute. It's adorable and precocious and innocent. And that's totally what it's meant to be. But at the same time, it's so naturalistic. Like, Claire Mathon uh, shoots this again from Portrait of Lady on Fire. And while it's not as like, 
visually haunting as that movie is, there is this dreamlike quality put over it. It does feel, you know, like a fable brought to life where, as you mentioned, the movie doesn't definitively lean one way or the other. In my opinion, it very does lean towards one way, but that's more of my interpretation. Uh, but because of that cinematography and because of the choices that, you know, Madon and Skama make, it really brings you into the space of like, it doesn't really matter what the whole, you know, scientific purpose or like the fantastical time trip. It doesn't matter. Like the whole idea is it doesn't matter what it's, you know, it doesn't matter how we got here. The point is you're seeing someone who maybe if she's not your mother, she at least reminds you of her who, and your mother herself is going through, you know, deep, dark times that you can't fully comprehend as a child. And at least for me, it's a movie that I kind of wish I had seen as a child. Like I, I feel like as kids, you know, we don't see our parents as people that often. We see them as caretakers. We see them as, you know, uh, things of necessity. And when you're an adult, those things drastically change. Like we see with there's a running thing where um, where Nellie is sad that she didn't get to say goodbye to her grandmother, but she kind of brushes it off fairly quickly. Whereas the parents all kind of like seethe in that kind of own sadness of like, oh, my granddaughter never got to say goodbye to her grandmother. But when you put that down to a kid's level, I found that the most potent part of the movie being like, it doesn't really matter how the story develops or doesn't. So in that sense, I think the running time actually helps. It makes it kind of this elongated short film that does exactly what it sets out to do. One of my you know, final notes here is just going to be between Josephine and Gabrielle Sanz, who play the twin girls in this film. Uh, I think with child actors, it can be hard for me to get the sense of realism that, that their performances aren't really forced. But here... Uh, credit to the director, credit to the cinematography. It does look like these two girls who are sisters are just having fun where they can and being serious where they have to. And just each line that they deliver, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe it's just the French language, but like her, even the young girl's conversation with her dad, um, spoken so eloquently, spoken so just believable. I, you forget that you're watching a movie. It just feels very, um, intimate and, uh, I found myself really admiring the the por- performances of these two uh, young girls. I thought that it was very nice. Oh, totally. And there's there's a camaraderie there, too. Like, even if it's not, you know, Nellie seeing Marion as her mother, it's still, if you can boil it down, just, you know, kids having fun. It's, you know, playing board games and making up the rules. And you know, I love that. Up, I love uh, that. Putting pancake a pancake across the yes. pancake. Yeah. And, like, there's all these little moments that are peppered through that like even when it becomes the whole narrative device of like oh no Marion's you know seeing Nellie's dad like does that mean that she exists as a young kid like it it doesn't really matter in that sense because the whole idea is just if it reminds her enough of that to get her as a child to reflect on very adult ideas I think that's the point that Skiyama is trying to get across and to me personally it, it really did affect me just that idea of those really deep questions that we don't ask as kids that both uh, that you're right both of the sounds girls are being really charismatic in very subtle ways. It's not really a performance that I get to see that often, especially from child actors. So yeah, kudos to both of them. It's deep and it's not earth shattering for either of them either. Like they, they, they talk about these big concepts as if it's just backyard conversation. And I have a seven year old brother who knows what kind of conversations he's having and they, they pull it off so believably. So excellent. For me, this is solid eight and a half. I really like this. It's not, it's not the sheer, I think, brilliance of Portrait of Lady on Fire. It doesn't have kind of the, you know, uh, the really poignant sense of storytelling that Girlhood did. But this is really charming. And Mark Kermode is a critic I really admire, made the point of like, this is something that you can see between six and 60 and just ball your eyes out. And I completely agree. Like, this is a movie that I think anyone should see. I would chalk it up with like Marcel the Shell with shoes on for anything in that category. 
And again, like the two girls are wonderful. It's shot in such this dreamlike way, but that still feels very naturalistic and very easy to latch onto. And the themes, I think if you are like many of us have been, you know, a child and recognizing your parents as one thing and then transitioning it to another thing and recognizing them more in their flaws and their humanities and their attempts to be good parents, I think this will hit you on an incredibly deep level. Again, because of the runtime, a lot of things are condensed. It doesn't really explain a lot. And even with those whole, you know, misadventures thing, they're not really flashy. They're very delicate and, you know, uh, kind of precocious in that vein. But I think it's well worth your time. Again, it's on Hulu if you want to stream it. And I think it's well worth it. My rating is going to be, uh, you know, I couldn't apply a number to this one. I just wrote down like a thumbs up. Could I give it like two thumbs up? I couldn't, but I know it's, I know it is one of my recommendations. I do want to ask people around me to go ahead and check this out for the reasons that you described here, for the reasons that you and I explored in our review. I just think that this film was enjoyable and soft and uh, Brandon says the word delicate and that just feels like it applies so um, appropriately. This is a recommendation. I know it's high up there. Am I torn between like seven, eight? I think so. But uh, for the most part, this is a recommendation of mine. Um, check it out. It's on Hulu. Well worth your time. With this conversation, Brandon, I want to go and rewatch it because yes, it's short, but there's that aspect of understanding parenthood and from the perspective of a young child that I didn't apply as deeply in the first half. So now I want to. We are going to move on from there to continuing the year of Colin Farrell, who has maybe had one of the best years in the world. Haley Lou Richardson as well, who we'll get into this. Uh, yes, Haley Lou Richardson. So good to see you. White Lotus season two. Which hopefully we'll talk about at some point, but who knows. Uh, After Yang came out earlier this year on uh, Showtime as well as in theaters. Uh, we were going to talk about it, but unfortunately it came out the same week as The Batman and uh, The Adam Project and Turning Wet, and we were just too damn busy. Now we are finally getting back to it. It was one of Noah's picks for this week. Noah, tell us more about After Yang from uh, director Kokonada. So After Yang is set in the future, okay? We're focusing in on a family. And this is an age where humans have advanced technologically to have technosapiens and cloned humans to kind of just be commonplace in conversation. So the movie's titled After Yang. Yang is a character. You can say Yang is a techno sapien he's a bot and he's one that has been part of a family that has now malfunctioned and the story really explores the questions of where life remains or how life remains how do we move on when we experience this passing of a family member colin farrell plays jake you know the dad jody turner smith kira the mom but one of the more focal characters is going to be in Mika, who is the young daughter of the two, played by Malaya Emma Chandrawi Jaya. And for her, I don't think the film goes so far as to tell you that, like, Mika always believed Yang was real. I think Mika is very aware that Yang is a is a brother who is there to serve a purpose. Uh, Mika is Chinese. So Yang is uh, being the daughter of two non-Chinese parents. Yang is there to be a big brother and to be another guardian, but also bring that level of cultural education to Mika. So she feels connected somewhat to her Chinese history. Um, there are big questions or big ideas that this film tackles. I'll tell you first, though, why it, it was my interested film and why I wanted to bring it up to Brandon. Um, between this film and another that I think exists in the same space, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Brandon, or not completely correct, but I think of this film and Swan Song. So I think about the aspects of cloning, you know, this sci-fi black mirror element where uh, things do feel natural in this film but they just peel away layer after layer and ask you to see something that's deeper than just a robot that is part of a family. 
what happens when you have this artificial loss because Yang does not have a heartbeat as we all do, but the grief that comes with his, you know, quote unquote passing, it, it affects beings around him real or not, you know, sentient or not. And um, there is another character that is prominent in this film that I want to mention. And her name is Ada played by Haley Lou Richardson. As we met, as we mentioned at the top is having another excellent year. Um, it's funny to remember her first appearance on my screen in split, but so happy that now she just comes back and back. It's got the sci-fi. It's got the, it's got the layers to it. Um, and it's got Colin Farrell. Oh my gosh, Brandon. Um, I know how I know the topics I want to explore, but before I dive right into there, what were your first impressions of After Yang? Um, were you excited that I selected this feature? And yeah, just introduce me to how you felt about it. First of all, am I hearing right that you finally watched Swan Song, my number two movie of last year? No, you're hearing incorrectly because I have not ah. watched it yet. But I just mentioned that it exists in that same corner, and right. it okay. will be the next film that I explore because it does it not have similar plot details or oh, but like world building. Even just aesthetically, like the very, you know, near future, very clean technology, but that still feels kind of alien. Uh, I, I also got like, I haven't seen it yet because I'm, you know, a freaking plebe, but I haven't seen Ex Machina yet. And it gave me vibes of what I think that movie looks like. Yes. But yeah, as far as After Yang goes, I, did you see Koganata's first movie, Columbus, from a couple of years ago? I did not. This is my first Koganata film. I also missed it, but I know a lot of film nerds adore them and a lot of architecture nerds too, because apparently like it's very architecture based. So I was curious to see what he could do in switching that over to the ideas of technology and cultural assimilation that I was hearing with after Yang. Obviously, I don't have Showtime, so I couldn't, you know, rent it throughout the year. And finally, you know, I just caved and rented it on VOD this past week for the show. Uh, this movie's brilliant. This movie is absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I need to go back and watch Columbus now because apparently that is also great. And I need to see what Coconut's whole shtick is about. Uh, yeah, this is beautiful. And I think what makes it so beautiful is it's not afraid to really dive into the ideas of assimilation and isolation, but also the ideas of much like the Timamon, the idea of grief, but a very different kind of grief. This is, uh, this is, I think, a movie tackling grief from perspective of, like you say, someone who, for all intents and purposes, the world does not view as alive. And as we go through, progress through the movie, we start to see the idea of like, well, maybe Yang wasn't alive in a traditional sense, but maybe the sense of alive in a traditional sense is wrong. And who gets to rewrite that? We see uh, Richie Coster pop up in here as a mechanic who kind of has these more conspiratorial ideas of like what Yang is and what his function is. But he's on the right track until we get to Sarita Chowdhury, who's a uh, museum curator, and getting the idea of like, yeah, there are people out there who see machines and especially machines nowadays. Obviously, this takes place like in the near future, but this is still the idea of like our modern technology not being what we design it for or evolves beyond what we see it for. It's very Blade Runner in that angle. Frankly, unlike Blade Runner, I found this movie way more emotional. Don't tell anybody. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's funny because th the movie is funny. Like it starts off in the intro credits. I'm sure you've seen this online with this giant game wise dance sequence. Brandon, the dance sequence, the introduction, the opening credit sequence with a just dance slash whatever kind of um, worldwide just dance are you kidding me and this is the it is a brilliant imagination e execution of displaying 
all of your all of your characters, your entire cast of characters. Let's place them each as like a different family unit and have them competing against each other in synchronized dance. Are you kidding me? I, I mean, give me give me a week, Brandon. I will learn the dance too. Give me the jumpsuit. <laughs> I will look just like them. I had so much fun from that moment on. I mean, the movie does have a soft, very um, quiet opening with a family photo being taken, of course, including Yang, and then it goes on into the dance number, and that's when my just my smile stayed because I go, this is, a, I will love this movie. And it, it held, it held true. And it's funny because that moment with the photograph starts both the movie and the trailer. And I was curious as why uh, the trailer chose that initially, the start of Yang's demise, so to speak, but it also completely establishes like the character bonding moments. Like it establishes Mika as very protective. It establishes Kira as very, you know, motherly and calm. It establishes Jake as very, you know, bringing on the incentive and the, uh, the action of the movie. And all of those character beats drive the movie and it, it kind of becomes the perfect opening scene that then leads into this wacky nonsensical thing but that immediately transitions back into oh yeah we have actual high stakes with this character who we're supposed to care about and all of those things just keep going through the movie like Koganata has such an amazing balance of the really just briefest of lighthearted moments whether it's like a little joke somewhere or you know a one-liner here or there like something Mika will say like oh the darndest like things what kids will say but at the same time it's incredibly quiet and poignant and it lets you sit with the characters Colin Farrell is of course having a year this Banshees of an Assurance is his best role this year but this is a close second like he is delivering his all to this movie. There's a scene with him and Yang talking about tea. In as a, he runs a tea shop and he's describing him like how he first got into it. And it's maybe one of the most poignantly human scenes I've seen all year. I'm right there with you. Farrell's best performance, yes. Banshees of Insurance. But this very, very close follow-up. Um, there was a point that you had where you said Yang is... Yeah, like the examples of technology and the advancements that it takes on its own versus what we apply to it and having it not go the route of a doomsday, right? Like where Yang you yeah. know, picks up a knife and learns what death is and learns how to kill and then starts doing that everywhere. Who's seen the movie Megan? Hey, I just watched it. Anyways, um, Yang instead advances on a deeper level and looks introspectively to ask himself, you know, I wonder what feeling more is like, you know, because I can, I only have the capacity to think in this way, but it, I do still have wonder and and it's it's written to convince you that Yang he gets that close to those human emotions to the point where it's like the Turing test the family is convinced the characters around Yang are convinced that you know this is a real person like these are real emotions and real connections that we're driving from it I like that it explores different lessons that Yang um introduces both to Jake's character, to Kira's character. Everybody has their own unique takeaways from Yang's passing. And it's not just about the young girl who lost her big robot brother, but it's how this entire family structure shifted. And I like that all of them also are taking the hard stance of, no, like we can't just get a replacement. We want to fix Yang because if we can't, then that's it. There is no Yang version two. While there is in the world, like you could get another model of this um, bot. That is not an approach that the family wants to take. And and it it's it's heartbreaking. But it, that's what this movie does is it wants you to feel those real emotions from from a family member who was not real. And that's the thing is that it approaches it from all different angles. Like they keep bringing up like, yes, we can't replace Yang, but they also bring up like, we can't afford this. Like we got this from like a secondhand well, right. dealer that the shop isn't there anymore, that no one knows how to like 
you know, restore him, except for like this one museum curator who's been studying it all her life. Like we, we couldn't if we wanted to. Like that's how exclusive technology has become. Let me mention that Chudori, who comes in as Cleo, the lead scientist. I'm so happy that we saw her in this film. Um, she just is so wonderful. I, I, I'm trying to remember the last time that I saw her, but, um, it's not coming to me. She was just very impressive to see in the opening sequence. And she has the face that you go, Oh, like I, I, I you know, yeah. fami- familiarity. And then, um, just technically, technically speaking, the film changes aspect ratios whenever I'm going to be basic and be like, whenever the characters like want to FaceTime each other, but that's pretty much what it is. Like Kira and Jake, every now and then sh- they'll share a meal in one of the scenes. Jake has a phone call with Cleo. Uh, multiple phone calls happen between Kira and Jake and they, the film takes on the box square ratio um, where it had always been just like full screen. And that even that shift like brings you into this world even further. And I, I love when a film, uses aspect ratio for that reason just to um expand on the storytelling and that's exactly how they did it and that's just like one of the tricks they use like there's also this thing where i know like i'm sure you notice where like they'll glitch certain lines every once in a while so someone will say a lot someone will say a lot someone will say a line and Yo, be that kind of thing brandon you just did it yeah. <laughs> that was excellent um i, I was like how can to- i show this <laughs> dude i didn't know how to take that because i thought well, is this supposed to be a false memory because there is a portion where uh, Jake is exploring Yang's memories. Um, sounds funny to say, right? Cause it's like a, a data log, but to, you know, instead these are, they do feel like real memories. Um, yeah. It's something to think about like why they did that. I took that as two different reasons. One, and I know we're going over long in this and I don't care. It's the idea. I think one of analyzing like, yes, Yang's point of view. Like we get most of those scenes when Yang is in the picture and seeing his point of view of that. But I also think it's to further blur the line between is Yang alive, quote unquote, because as we see throughout the movie, there's that idea of like, what is inside Yang that's making him so different? Like, what are techno, like, are techno sapiens evolving or has this always been there all along? And I felt like whenever those glitch scenes came into picture it was that idea of like, yeah, maybe it is Yang's point of view, or maybe it's ours and we're forgetting this just as much as he is, or we have the same capacity that he does. And it's the idea of blurring the line between what is and isn't considered alive. You just sparked something for me. And it's like what, what was or wasn't said verbatim doesn't change how we felt when we, when we took in those words, right? Like the emotion. Much like Petit Maman, it's the idea of like, you don't need to know how, you just need to know why they're feeling that. Brandon, final notes before we go into ratings. I have one, but I'd like you to do it first. I want to give a shout out real quick to uh, Asuka Matsumiya and Ryuichi Sakamoto for doing the music. Uh, it's great. Also, Mitsuki does an original song for this. Uh, her second one this year, but beyond uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which she's been having a great year too. Um, yeah, the music's great. It really adds to the ambiance of it all. Um, some of the production design, I wish had gone a little bit further. Like there's this whole thing where like we're mostly in like little cityscapes. We're very much intimate settings, like in rooms or, you know, in a cafe. And I wish we had seen a bit more of the world around it, but I also think that would take away from some of the scale. So I I don't know how to correctly advise that. Dude, and your negatives are right where I'm going to attack the positive because for okay. me, yeah, for me, production design, uh, especially for the sets, one of my favorites is going to be the technician's workshop where even though we don't explore any of the things that are on the shelf, yeah. let me tell you, there are 20,000 shelves. Each one is filled to the edge of the seat. Um, the lighting that they apply to every scene, the little coffee shop that looks almost familiar, but you know, it exists somewhere in the future, the driverless car where we have scenes in, um, everything just felt as detailed as possible the houses yes they're kind of modern looking but just pretend it's modern 
I can't even tell you where this takes place in the future because part of me wants to believe it's right around the corner. And the other part of me goes, no, this is like a century later. Um, but I, I did find myself admiring just the lay of the land before I, before I um, applied that focus to the characters, dialogue, et cetera. I will also quickly say I did want to see, and we should praise Jodie Turner-Smith. She's great in this, as she's been in a lot of things. Uh, I wish we had gotten more of an exploration between her and Colin Farrell. There's this whole thing of, like, maybe their marriage is on the rocks. Maybe they're having, like, serious problems beyond just their own love for each other. And I always felt like it was Mika and Yang's relationship that they were always focusing on and not enough on each other. I, I don't know. I, I think for two actors of their caliber, I think the script could have done a bit more to kind of explore what it means, especially them as, like, two non-Asian parents raising two, you know, Asian kids. Like, what does that mean for them? We get it, you know, from Mika and Yang's context, but not really from theirs. So I think there were things to explore there. The movie just doesn't. But again, that's not really, it's not diminishing the broad strokes of the movie. I will start after Yang's ratings. And I almost want to go higher, but I'm going to, I'm going to safely secure my spot and say eight and a half out of 10. It is a movie, <laughs> I'm going to beat the point to death, but it's a movie that brings about um, real emotions from a loss that isn't entirely human, and it doesn't have to be. Um, the types of change that comes with Yang's passing uh, is familiar to anyone who has experienced grief, especially um, to a loved one that was held so close. And uh, the film doesn't need to end on a necessarily like big kaboom high for me to walk away feeling... Uh, you know, these intense emotions because how it does end, you, you feel content, you sit with it and you accept it. And that's what I found to be very powerful. Um, excellent performances. Of course, we've said about Farrell, about Smith, about, um, Chandrawi Jaya and, uh, Oh, not to mention Justin H. Min, who, you know, if you're a fan of Umbrella Academy, you, you've seen his face. You know who he is. Um, we should probably mention Yang and after Yang. Yeah, yeah. How can we not? <laughs> Sorry. Hey, it's the last point because it is we're saving the best for last. But yes. eight and a half out of ten, unfortunately not available on um, streaming platforms. But um, I went ahead and rented this, I believe, on like Apple TV, um, where you can find it for about four dollars. And uh, it'll be the best four dollars you spend after listening to this podcast. Brandon, over to you. I should also say, I think it's also available on Showtime and I rented it for $2 on Google Play. So you're right. Showtime as well. Yes. I should go lower with it just because, again, I'm making my best of the year list and I don't want it to be too overpacked. But like, this is going to be pretty close. It's a nine out of 10. Like, this is freaking fantastic. Um, again, the performances from, you know, Colin Farrell and, you know, uh, Justin Min and just, the whole cast is particular. Haley Lee Richardson, as you mentioned, is not in the movie that much but she really brings that just extra layer of spice to the movie and that extra layer of character development the movie needs. But Koganada, I don't know why he takes five years to make movies. I'm sure he has his reasons, but like, I wish he'd make more of them. Like, this is really fantastic. I, I again need to go back and watch Columbus, but it has that sense of like the great sci-fi fiction of the idea of things that are just out of reach of what we understand, but are also just new enough to us. And the idea of technology evolving beyond what we know, but maybe it already was, maybe we weren't, just as imperfect as the things we view of that, you know, it's the, and it's a story about, you know, cultural assimilation. It's a story about isolation and grief. It's a story about families. And we didn't even go into the idea of like cloning. Like that's the thing in this movie that it goes over. And, you know, those ideas of what family units can be versus what they should be. It, it's a movie about so many different things beyond just memories. And I go back to uh, the line that, you know, I won't say how it closes the movie, but it's a line. I want to be just like a melody, just like a simple sound, like in harmony. And it's that idea of people who we lose living on through the things that are eternal. And I feel like after Yang really embodies that thing of what does live on beyond 
you know, what we what we see as consciousness. It, it's very pretentious, I understand as I'm saying it, but when you watch it and you're willing to engage with it, it becomes really poignant and just really special. And I'd say, again, it's a special movie, I think. Brandon, don't say it's pretentious. It is beautiful. What's the line? Of, again, what's the line between pretentious and beautiful? What's the line between alive and not alive? We could not wrap this year without talking about Netflix's in association with Marvel release. Sorry, this was, yes, a big theatrical release. Now available on Netflix, starring Jared Leto, starring Matt Smith. You know, you know, we didn't have to talk about this. It's more. We're going to go ahead and talk about. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and talk about Morbius. Brandon's got the summary for you. You know what went down, though. So I, I'm sure so many of you are at the edge of your seat waiting for the PD crew to tackle this, the popcorn club to tackle this. But Brandon, go ahead and tell us about Morbius. Morbius. This is the latest in Sony's line of Spider-Man less Spider-Man movies or the, what's the term for it? Uh, Sony's Spider-Man universe now or the as it was called the Spamunk, which I thought was terrible, but they're trying their best and, you know, we're appreciative for what it was. Uh, we talked about Venom a while ago and, you know, they're working on seven other movies and, you know, we'll see how it gets. Anyways, Morbius is based on the uh, character from the 70s, Morbius the Living Vampire, created by uh, Roy Thomas and Gil Kane. Started out as a Spider-Man villain uh, of the pseudo-supernatural sort. We'll get into his powers in just a second. Became kind of an anti-hero in the 90s and now Sony is seeing him for his own movie. Uh, it's directed by Daniel Espinosa, best known for his work with uh, Ryan Reynolds, actually, on movies like uh, Safe House and Life. Jared Leto stars here as Michael Morbius, a doctor who is uh, basically the world's foremost expert on blood poisoning and blood diseases. Uh, he was born himself with a rare blood disorder. We follow him uh, at the start of the movie uh, in Costa Rica with a bunch of bats and Things happen, and suddenly we cut to years later. He is, you know, uh, he's winning a Nobel Prize, but his health is failing him. Uh, we also cut back and forth to his relationship with a young kid named Lucian, who he calls Milo, played by uh, Matt Smith. Smith's character also has the same uh, blood disorder as him, so uh, they form this brotherly attachment. Uh, Michael promises to cure both of them eventually, which he is able to do. He's, you know, has his New York residency. He's working with uh, Adria Arjona, who's another character, uh, Dr. Bancroft, who's kind of his colleague slash pseudo love interest. We'll get into it. Anyways, through various machinations and means, uh, Morbius is working with artificial blood. Uh, he crafts this kind of serum. Uh, that he thinks can work, and he goes into international waters to do it, and long story short, he kills a bunch of people. He is now a living vampire. He has all the abilities of a vampire. He's got kind of the speed, the, you know, um, the kind of echolocation function. He's got a measurable strength, but he also has this insatiable bloodlust that the artificial blood will only last for so long, and will he resort to killing people? And oh no, now Milo's taking the serum, and now he's also a living vampire, but Milo is also way more um he's also way more uh negative on humanity than morbius is what will the conflict be shenanigans ensue noah this movie's gotten mean to death so hard that it convinced sony to release it back into theaters it hasn't gotten the greatest reception but i will admit i walked in with an open mind i wanted to see what they could do with this character because i've i've always found the character fascinating i've never really read any of the source material i didn't really watch the 90s spider-man series where he uh is, is most prominent popping up in is it morbin time Brandon, it doesn't help that this movie released on April Fool's Day. Okay, Morbius, um, the Batman. Just kidding. Is there a Batcave? Yes. Is he the Batman? No. Um, he is uh, Jared Leto. Beautiful hair, always conditioned. And body, wow. That body was whew, amazing. But let's talk about the movie. Um, this was more enjoyable than I expected. Out the gate. Really? Yeah. yeah. I think I watched this and was I, if I put it on, 
at the end of the night, making the conscious decision to take in some entertaining media before bed, I would have turned it off. <laughs> but if I made the decision in the morning, eating my breakfast burrito to be like, you know what? I'm going to put on, I'm going to put on just like a flick, just to have on for just, you know, visual uh, juggling, visual circus. That's what this film kind of gave me. Um, I think that there is uh, honestly nothing entirely new about this film in it being a superhero film, being the, in, including shots and scenes that, involve you know the scientist that takes in too much of what they've created um succumbing to their own creation um having a love interest that is also their uh professional colleague and then having the stakes be potentially losing them a, a best friend from the past who comes into your life and ends up manipulating the uh intention of your creation it's it's all bits and pieces of other better movies that you've seen Apply them to the Morbius narrative. Does it work? Visual circus. Um, let me tell you who I was excited to see in this film, because I do think that some performances actually come through. Uh, having just watched House of the Dragon, Matt Smith is, he plays like this, um, you know, once sickly, now like arrogant, like kind of showrunner type attitude now that he's got the serum as well. Um, he has so much fun in this role, whether it's like getting ready in front of a mirror before he, you know, goes all Milo Morbius out in his own way. Um, but there's two characters that I kind of wish I had spent more time with just because I did like seeing them. Uh, Tyrese Gibson plays Agent Simon Stroud, who is like the lead detective pursuing Morbius. Um, Al Madrigal. Uh, and then we just talked about her in our TV recap, um, wherever it exists in the cloud in the space of podcasting, um, with Adria Arjona, who plays Martine Bancroft, who is, uh, the colleague to, uh, Dr. Michael Morbius. Whenever she was here, I, I was excited to uh, see what would come about there. I, but honestly, knowing like what beats the story was going to take with how they continued their relationship. Um, low key, I got Winter Soldier vibes. I don't know about you. Like just not, not in terms of like, you know, bombastic appreciation, but on the scales of, you know, best friend from the past, um, you know, is there okay. someone, is there someone in you that I can save? Is there that friend that I can save before you, before I lose you to your own corruption? Um, go watch Winter Soldier. It's the better movie. I mean, who had to say it? Not me, but Brandon, please, please take our conversation somewhere before I end up just rambling on. Go on. Rage being tempered by co-hosts. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, look, again, I wasn't ecstatic going into this movie. Daniel Espinosa isn't really a director who I've loved really any of his movies. Uh, Jared Leto, I was convinced, was a great actor. We'll talk about it. Uh, and like Matt Smith, like I was a giant Doctor Who fan. Like he was my doctor. So anything he does at this point, I will, you know, give him a shot on this. I like the supporting cast a lot. You know, the character seemed fascinating. And again, whatever you want to say about Sony's shenanigans, this could work on paper. And like you were saying, there are vibes of an interesting story in there. The idea of, you know, what would you do to save the person you most care about? And how far will you go to do that? You know, what kind of dark depths will you go into? How many people will you push away to get to that? And I think that kind of gothic subtext is there on paper. Keyword on paper. This doesn't work. And I don't think it works because of just how hollow it feels. Like Jared Leto... I, I don't want to say he's not trying, but I, I never got a grasp into his character. Oh, he's trying. He's trying, Brandon. He's Is trying. He? 
I don't know if he is. I get, I'm, I'm convinced that like, he is playing a character that I think is new, kind of, is he? Maybe I'm just got, like, maybe I'm just telling myself this. There are, there are moments. So whenever that face goes into Morbius completely, gotta say, I detach myself. I am not there with them. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. I almost like, I laugh a little bit. Um, this isn't a like in movie, but that's all they look like. I'm not going to say convince me that he's not a good actor because I do think in the right role he can. But I think in this role, he's just kind of playing the Jared Leto cult of personality just a bit more. Like when we see him first, like cut, like he's cut and ripped from the cure and like he's tearing people apart, like just before he transforms. And then when he's back in like his lab, you know, festering in his own mood, like I just felt like there's no nuance to this. And I felt like the script, the script doesn't give him any favors, but I don't think he is really delivering on this. Adria Arjona is also doing a thing, but is really just relegated to the smart scientist who has a love interest. I disagree. I think both Al Magical and Tyrese are wasted in this. They're so charismatic. And I think they're just wasted to the fun, lighthearted cop and the cop who's way too serious about his duty. The one exception is Matt Smith. Matt Smith is at least good in this. And I think the reason he's at least good in this is because he's at least finding, he, he's at least embracing the camp for one thing. Like uh, you mentioned the mirror scene, you mentioned kind of when he first gets the cure, like he, he's embracing the more wacky tendencies of what this movie can be. But I think even beyond that, there is the slightest bit of subtext that I saw in his character of like someone who, unlike Morbius, he's been sheltered his whole life. We see like kind of a prologue scene where he's beaten up by bullies. And at the very least, it's not much, but you get just the sense that like, yeah, he would hate humanity. He would think that like, you know, this is, if we're talking like X-Men parallels, the next step in human evolution. And so I at least found his character a bit believable to root for. Obviously he's, you know, a giant a-hole, but like he's doing it for semi-reasonable reasons. Before I saw this movie, I really thought that the conflict of character was going to be in Morbius's primal craving for human blood versus his like duty to science and his duty to remaining um this hero like maybe he was going to be this anti-hero of sorts but that never really comes through you know he gets imprisoned very immediate like immediately after he gets imprisoned after introducing the serum to the um antagonist of the film and then after being released from prison he goes on like he goes on a flight trip they get into a fight he experiences mine, I'm going to call it minor loss. And then they have the big fight at the end. So there isn't much going on in this movie. It's over an hour and a half. And it's surprising that just not much happens. Um, let alone the CGI, whatever they wanted to do for like the trail behind Morbius and the trail that exists. Oh, like smoke fog. Yeah. Like I didn't like it. At all. I think I'm watching and I'm kind of going like, okay, so like, is he supposed to be flesh that's melting away? Is he supposed to be able to do the Harry Potter thing of like, uh, dissipating or dis disapparating, whatever they call it? Uh, the film doesn't tell you. I, I mean, the, the movie watching it, it doesn't tell you either. Seem suddenly he can like feel the waves of the wind and where things are going. And that's how he can like go into the, the channels that allow him to fly. I'm not answering any questions because <laughs> all I have is the questions. There's no answers here, just the questions. And I will be kind. There are a couple of like sporadic beats of like interesting language. Like you mentioned uh, Morbius's first time flying. That could have been great. At best, it's neat. Like there's a whole thing. Like that's the one sense of like wonderment that I get from Leto as a performer. Like he sees the wind passing by his fingers and kind of using his science brain kind of knows like, oh, this is where I, I can go with this and I can, you know, go. like it, it kind of adds up in that character beat. I also want to quickly mention, this is not a horror film, but the scene with the nurse in the hallway. 
That was kind of freaky. It was. It was freaky. Uh, the film, as as a superhero movie, it doesn't do a lot to show you what Morbius can do. Like, there isn't... I mean, okay, echolocation, it does take its time with that, and I liked how they use it in the film. Other than that, when Morbius is flying and when he navigates throughout the city, you would think he is the Hulk with how he just latches onto buildings, throws himself to another, runs on the... Uh, the rooftop of another runs, jumps, latches onto building, jumps. It, it would have been nice to have an up close personal look with like how Morbius is engaging, how Morbius, like the turned version is engaging with the world around him because now all of his senses are different. Everything should feel different. And it doesn't, it kind of just feels like he's just like this, this um, a pogo sticking <laughs> doctor who's kind of going all around New York. Um, but Hey, there are certain ties to other universes. At least we got Matt Smith picking up a daily bugle. That's true. And you know what? That whole Spider-Man tease that was in the trailer, it's not in there except it is. And we might get to it. Um, but I do want to quickly mention uh, Adria Arjona, who I, I really like, and we just talked about Andrew recently and like, she's great in that. And like, she's been great in a lot of other things. She's so wasted in this to the point where like the big romantic scene comes in and I felt nothing. I felt more connection between uh Michael and Milo as a potential item than I did anything with Bancroft as a as a romantic character. Like there's just so little in there. And then when we leave her off, it's just it's this very messy ending third act that's supposed to culminate in this great big battle sequence that on concept art I'm sure looks great, but on screen I don't think looks all that. Oh, Brandon, you know, on the concept art, they loved the shot of Morbius hanging upside down by his legs and, oh, yeah. you know, Milo being on the ground. But the romantic thread that you, that you mentioned about Milo and Morbius being drawn, I was like, ooh, for anybody who's interested in that, go watch Winter Soldier. It's a stronger thread. <laughs> it's a thicker thread. Um, You're a stucky shipper? I plead the fifth. I will not say that <laughs> on this pod. Um, <laughs> anyways. Uh, Brandon, let's go ahead and talk about the spoilers or like the after credit scene. Who, yeah. who cares? Who cares? It's not going to, I mean, it's like the Venom 2 after credit scene, right? Or, um, sorry. You know what? Let's talk about the after credit scene and then I kind of have a fun question. You've seen, uh, Carnage, right? Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that immediately after. Oh, der, you did. A, I reviewed a, it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Okay. After credit scene, Brandon, what goes on? Who shows up? We know it's Vulture. What does he say? So, okay. If I can condense it. After the events of No Way Home and Multiverse of Madness, because yes, this is still somehow tied into the MCU, uh, Adrian Toomes, aka the Vulture, played by Michael Keaton, pops up in a prison cell and they release him because they're like, you're not of this universe. We have no record of imprisoning you for any crime. Go away. And that's kind of the end of it until the actual post credit scene when he meets up with Morbius in his Vulture suit, which he somehow gets and is basically like, I know your work. We should team up. Team up on what? Who knows? But something. Uh, this is stupid. I want a like somebody to make a um, mega edit of just all of these hilarious after after credit scene because this isn't an after credit scene. This is an after after credit scene, a post post credit scene where we just have the same conversation um, pieces from from the two characters. It's always a you know central character going. Oh, I'm here now. What's going on? And then it's additional character coming in and going, I can, e I can easily use the Black Adam script where you know who shows up and says, we need to talk. And the other character goes, I'm listening. 
if you look at a book, it's chapter zero. It's not even zero. It's like the first, it's the word zero in the chapter zero of a book. Um, it, it annoys me, but it's just such a tease that maybe it still piques the interest of those who, uh, you know, prescribe attention to these teases. But at this point, I've kind of expected them to be just that. And watching this felt no different. And you know, it's biting, you know, fool me once, shame on me kind of thing. When they talk about in the movie, when Tyrese and um, uh, Al Madrigal are talking about the event in San Francisco, and I was like, oh, this is kind of tying like the side characters of Spider-Man together. It's its own separate thing. Like maybe Morbius and Venom meet up eventually. That could be neat. And then by the end of it, it's almost like, yeah, forget about that. This is a multiversal story. We got Michael Keaton there. They're going to fight Spider-Man. You know they're going to fight Spider-Man, right? Because you're comic book fans. And I'm like, no, that's stupid. Because like the whole point of Adrian at the end of uh, Spider-Man Homecoming is that he's reformed. Like, he doesn't see Peter as an enemy anymore. So beyond the fact of where the hell does he get the Vulture suit, it's the idea of, like, why do I care about a villainous turn for the Vulture again when there's no reason for him to be that? Brandon, this Venom 2, uh, The Rise of Carnage, uh, the film. Where do you place either of them? Between this and Carnage? Yes. Oh, Carnage is better, by far. By, like, Uh, a lot? Not a lot, but by a significant margin. Because at the very least, Carnage, I think, knows how to have fun. Carnage is the better film when you you have that relationship between... Eddie and Venom just, you know, further made hilarious. And um, it's so fun to watch the beginnings of that film. But when I was at the finale of Morbius, I was taken back to Carnage. And I thought, ooh, like, it just felt really flashy. And I think that that's to his detriment. Um, I'm going to kick this one off. Um, I, I think I've just... I've kind of bashed on this film on this review. I'm going to give it a six. <laughs> I'm going to give it a six out of 10. Um, just to put that up with other reviews though, in the past, my memory, though it has failed me recently, I believe I gave Halloween kills a six and I, oh no, no. Yeah. Halloween kills is number two. I don't remember. Halloween kills is number two. And I believe I gave it a six. Cause at the time I was like, Oh, a six is low. Um, uh, and then we went to, then we went on to watch Pinocchio starring uh, Tom Hanks. And I gave that like, don't even want to say that. I think I could count it on one hand and not include the thumb. But <laughs> when we talk about a Morbius, I'm going to give it a six because like I said, it's that movie that you can put on in the middle of your day that you're like, I kind of just want a something visually, visually impressive is the wrong word. I want something visually um circusy to have on starring some A-list actors. Cause that is what you have here. A uh, massive talent um on screen. Do they have the script to match the talent that they can uh, potentially output? Uh, I'm not going to say yes, but I'm going to say six with a thumbs up because would I watch this again on another afternoon where I'm looking for something circusy? You know, I will. Well, after I get through some other things though, Brandon, over to you for a rating. I completely respect that. And like, there is certainly a place for movies like that, even within the superhero realm community. And I understand that people like myself are coming at it a bit too harshly. And you know what? Like Daniel Espinosa, I'm convinced is a good director. I watched life. That's a good movie. You know, I'm convinced the people involved in this will go on to make better things. Three and a half out of ten. This is bad. Oh my gosh. Okay. Whoa. Whoa. Go on. Yeah. This is a hollow mess of a movie that I barely cared about other than the brief moments of Matt Smith understanding the bit and some okay neat visual components, but that still don't work in the overall context of the movie. This is a mess of a story that I just didn't really connect with. It's trying to do a bunch of different things. It's trying to embody kind of, you know, this kind of Frankenstein-y mad scientist tendency of it all to really embrace like some darker ideas, but it never has the balls to go there. Again, I don't really blame Espinosa for this. I'm sure there was some meddling behind Sony scenes that they've done with a lot of these movies, 
But again, I just could not connect with it. The post-credit scenes annoy the ever-living godlight out of me. And just the whole concept of it as a whole, where it's this 90-minute, you know, relic of the 90s, much like Venom was. But again, like you mentioned, at least the Venom movies had a central conflict that I liked and was able to get attached to. This has something that is made between a lead actor who I just don't care about as much anymore with a character who should be fascinating and it just doesn't. And it's disappointing above anything else. Just, I don't know. See if you're curious. It's on Netflix. You're not going to waste any money, but. Yeah. They made this movie too big for what it, for, uh, for something that could have been much less. You got a character, you got an actor like Jared Leto and you, I don't think you need the security detail. I don't think you need the, um, you either need Matt Smith or you need um, Adria Jorna exclusively. You don't need the, the pair of them because I think that that tells a better story of this. You know, you say Frankenstein, I would have appreciated a Jekyll and Hyde type of exploration of this character, yeah. Morpheus, um, coming to terms with this beast that you are now, you've become, he cannot go back. He can't go backwards because backwards means death. So uh, an exploration of that kind of um, conflict results in a better Morpheus film, in my opinion. It is officially the end of Morbin time. Uh, we are completely done. We have feasted um, and we were not satiated. So we're going to be moving on to our fifth film for this 2022 catch up. Thank you for sticking with us for as long as you have. Uh, we are going on to... Uh, we're going to remain here on Netflix, but this time exploring a beloved director, um, received numerous awards, has even gotten best picture. And it is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which... Don't get confused. We are not talking about the Disney Plus release. This is Netflix's. This is Del Toro's. This is a a wondrous film. And I can't wait to tell you more about it alongside my co-host, Brandon. He's going to tell you some details. You know, we know you know the Pinocchio story, but there's more than meets the eye here. Over to you, Brandon. Yeah, I'm not going to give you like the Pinocchio spiel. You know, it's it's a boy. You know, he's given life by the Blue Fairy. He's raised by Geppetto. He goes to school. There's a whale. And that's the story. Except there's a lot more to this, actually. Uh, this is, as you mentioned, directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafsson as well. And I believe his feature directorial debut, uh, if any of you are animation nerds, you might know him from his work on the uh, Adventures of Mark Twain animated series. Uh, look that up. It's a bit of nightmare fuel. Uh, we follow uh, Pinocchio created by Geppetto. Uh, Pinocchio here voiced by Gregory Mann. Uh, Geppetto voiced by David Bradley. Kind of murderer's row of a cast here. You've got uh, Tilda Swinton as both the Wood Sprite, aka the Blue Fairy, as well as the Incarnation of Death in here. You've got uh, Kate Blanchett as a monkey, which is fantastic. There's a whole great story about her uh, begging Gamble to to be in this movie, and he just gives her this part. Um, you've got Ron Perlman in here as a uh, fascist general, which ties into the greater thing is that this takes place during you know the bridge between World War One and World War Two in fascist Italy. Uh, Mussolini is coming to power. All tied together by Ewan McGregor, voicing uh, Sebastian J. Cricket, the version of Jiminy Cricket uh, in this movie. It's a very different take than we've ever seen with the Pinocchio mythos before, certainly different from the Zemeckis version. Uh, all that seemed at face value, because again, Noah, you know, you and I, we came into this having watched the Zemeckis Pinocchio. We gave our thoughts. You can go listen back to that episode. Uh, Noah, is this at all better? This is 110% Guillermo del Toro, um, Shape of Water. Um, Pan's Labyrinth, the Nightmare Alley. Like, I didn't think I knew what to expect. I just knew that it was going to be something imaginative and like freak-esque because those are the lanes that he so excellently like navigates. I am 
in my adulthood, I am finding that I am appreciating um, just the, all of the effort that goes behind a stop motion picture film like this one, where in the past films like Coraline films, like the nightmare before Christmas uh, were examples of the films that kind of used to, you know, incite some fear in me because something about the uncanny nature of these characters, these almost human looking faces, uh, you're talking corpse bride uh, would just, yeah, bring up those feels feelings of unease in me. Well, this film is absolutely different. When the film starts, we look at Geppetto's relationship with his son, and it is, uh, it's a lovely tale of this father's love for his boy, uh, when he is taken too soon from him. And then, then I think it takes a shift into the, the world and the mind of Del Toro, where we see what state Geppetto was in when he built Pinocchio. Pinocchio here was a product of Geppetto's immense rage at his life, like at his situation and circumstance for losing his boy um, from a, a a passing plane that dropped a dropped a bomb in a church where his boy walked in to grab a pine cone. Like it, it just these beats are so heartbreaking that um I think you do feel the pain of Geppetto when he builds Pinocchio and this was a man who was getting drunk on his son's grave before he tore down the tree that that existed right above it and then built Pinocchio. Like th- there are, there are ways that the Pinocchio story is told that, that feel familiar, but then Del Toro spins it and shows you why this is his film. And even on, I, even on IMDb, it is not listed as Pinocchio. It is listed as Guillermo Del Toro's Pinocchio. Very appropriate. Um, Brandon, uh, some elements that you latched onto from the beginning, did it, imme- did it immediately feel, feel like his film? Yes, immediately. There is that sense of like, warmth to it within the darkness i i always describe the best of del toro as like a flickering candlelight in like a sea of dark black water i don't know how that visual works but i always describe it like that like there's the unknown around you that you can't quite see but there's just that little bit of you know bright warmth to it and that's how this immediately feels like you don't know for sure but you have a pretty good idea of how the story is going to go and even you know um ewan mcgregor as the critic kind of puts out in the beginning like you know the story but you don't and to its credit it does like this kind of says, you know, I'm going to keep putting Zemeckis film under the rug for a second. This kind of throws that story in the trash. It kind of goes like, here are the beats of the story and we're going to fill it in with whatever we think is necessary. And what they think is necessary is really good and interesting, which, which bears the lead. I love this movie. Um, and I think what's really great about it is just that sense of del Toroism about it. It really knows how to balance the sense of emotional stakes about it. The animation will obviously get into, but I think that really brings to mind the sense of, a dark fairy tale like the best of like Pan's Labyrinth or the Hellboy movies. It brings to mind anti-fascist storytelling that I think it lost in kids material. Like, I don't know if I'd say this is a kids movie pertaining to like, you know, Disney movie or like even the original novel version. But like, I think this goes to a kind of all ages sense of spectacle that I think is lost on us nowadays, live action or otherwise. So there's a lot of stuff that I was just really impressed by and immediately grappled with in just the first couple minutes. When I watch this film, am I watching it for its story beats? Of course. Am I watching it for its performances and the voice acting? Yes. But then I'm just taking a second to pause and realize that everything you see before you is handmade and is mo- is being moved like centimeter by centimeter with by these artists. And um, even when it comes down to, you know, Geppetto singing to his boy in bed, the types of camera work that they need to pull off is only is only executable when they have a mock like scene portrayed by real life actors on a real bed, not on a real set. And then just applying that to how they move their characters with the, with the, the dolls, the puppets that they have. Um, 
had to get that out the gate. Uh, you learned some excellent details that went into the production of this film. If you throw that on, um, you can even put that on beforehand and, and see if this film is even going to be one of yours that you're interested in, though I hope it will. Additionally, I wanted to take a beat and uh, look at the character Ewan McGregor plays. It's Cricket. And this is not Jiminy Cricket. This is Sebastian J. Cricket, who is a aspiring um, uh, autobiographer det- or memoir writer talking about his life on the road, having traveled, you know, on whaling ships and uh, in the cracks of, you know, insert location, because he is that kind of um, adventurer having traveled to this tree with his backpack and ready to settle in and continue writing only to be disturbed by a a drunken Geppetto wanting to build Pinocchio. And then he takes up residence inside Pinocchio and is able to witness um, Pinocchio come to life. And of course he does still serve as that essential conscience for the wooden boy. Um, but Ewan McGregor, every time he comes in uh, as the cricket and the types of lines he delivers, like he just wants Pinocchio to see the better and to realize that like there, there is a, an appreciation to life that he has, that he may have, but he has to navigate it carefully. And, um, for me, he was one of the more delightful parts. They interrupt his song, his solo song, so many times that by the time it finally comes in the end, you, you just feel so uh, deserving for the character. Uh, and you know he's an, he is a uh, well-established like uh, re- recording artist. You know He's I, done I, so many musicals. All the Moulin Rouge fans were like, come on! Yes, myself included. Um, <laughs> did uh, Sebastian J. Cricket impress you? Yes, actually, because again, very different from what we're used to from the Cricket character, because He's not really trying to be a moral center. He's not. You know, I, for context, I just watched uh, Puss in Boots, and there is a Jiminy Cricket allegory in that movie, and it reminded me of kind of the archetype that we associate with the cricket. No, Sebastian isn't that. Like, he is very much out for himself. He believes himself to be all that. Like, his whole life's purpose is chronicling his own wacky misadventures, and it's only when he encounters uh, the wood sprite, a.k.a. Gun the Blue Fairy, that he has this slight turn, and by the end of it, he himself has this really definitive arc. And again, Ewan McGregor, he does a great job with this. He kind of balances that vaudeville kind of, you know, jumpy nature that we associate with the character, but also like a couple of like darker, more emotional tendencies. And I really appreciated that. One other thing that changes for this um, take on the Pinocchio tale is that when Pinocchio, he actually dies in this film and he dies several times. And it's a main plot point. (laughs) Yes, it is. He is first, I believe, hit by a truck. And so he goes into the underworld where he is wakes up in a coffin and he's escorted by these rabbit looking figures who are just like death's um, workers, right? Or just death's, uh, I don't want to say servants, but that's what they feel like, right? Um, and so they deliver Pinocchio time and time again when he dies. And when Pinocchio meets this embodiment of death, again, voiced by Tilda Swinton, he learns that every time he dies, he must spend time here in the underworld before returning back to his real world. And this is what, yes, the gift of eternal life means. However, it just means that the the more and more times Pinocchio perishes up in the real world, he's going to spend even longer in, and uh, miss out on even more of the time that's passing up in the real world, which I found to be so excellent. And it made me, uh, that makes this again, completely different. And again, it never forgets that it's being told from the point of view of a child. Like, it never forgets the idea of, like, you have to explain to a kid who thinks, oh, I can live forever, this is great, like, and I'll never age, and you'll always be this rambunctious, you know, person I've always been. And it's the idea of, like, yes, moving past the person who you were, but also the idea of, like, if you're a kid watching this, you know, and hearing, you know, David Bradley and Tilda Swinton and all these actors give across this dialogue, 
it's so naturalistic and so matter of fact about the whole thing that it makes it more universal. It doesn't make it, you know, this fantastical thing that you need to understand. Like, why is there like this wood sprite hosting like these random four black rabbits voiced by Tim Blake Nelson in his second Guillermo del Toro surprise appearance? Like, why is that a thing? It doesn't matter. Like, the only thing that matters is that, again, you are within Pinocchio's headspace and learning it from the sense of nuance and sense of new understanding that he is. And I think that totally worked. I do want to mention David Bradley as Geppetto, who broke my heart in this several times over. Uh, the, the, let's just say there's a scene with him on the beach towards the very end. I didn't cry, I bawled. And I think his performance in this really ties the emotional stakes in the movie together. Like, Gregory Mann is a very good Pinocchio, and I will absolutely praise him to have him back. But, like, David Bradley, I think, nails the more broad sense of, uh, of beats. Like, spoiler, when we initially see the movie, you know, uh, Geppetto loses his son, and we see him gradually sinking further and further in. But even once Pinocchio is brought to life, and even when he seemingly has a reason to go on living and to, you know, protect someone he cares about, He's still sinking further and further. He still keeps pushing Pinocchio away to the point where, like, we see his flaws. We don't see him as, like, this kindly old gentleman that, we're again, we're so used to. It it goes back to this idea of the movie allowing characters to be flawed and eccentric and morally corruptible a lot of points, but it never makes them irredeemable. And it really drives that line between, in this society, what do you need to do to move forward and who can you care about? And, again, I was just really... I can't really put it into words, but like when you see it in the movie, you're really just driven by the sense of pure love and excitement that the movie is driving forward. Kate Blanchett had worked with Del Toro before on Nightmare Alley, and that's where, you know, the two had a camaraderie, or as she said it, it was just this relationship where she really wanted to work with him again. And so he, um, is, by one means or another, she learned that his next project was Pinocchio and she had asked to be, a, you know, I'll voice anything. And he had said that he had casted everything, you know, except for the monkey, Spasatura. And so that is why we have Kate Blanchett having just starred in Tar, uh, you know, her list of so many wondrous performances comes in as a monkey and only has like these screeches and like yells to embody a character with and, and do what she does. Um, but I want to get back to Bradley, you know, the voice of Geppetto and say that if you told me the, you know, the grumpy, uh, the grumpy and just like kind of angry all the time custodian of Hogwarts was going to bring out this emotionality in Geppetto, I would have immediately doubted you. But so much appreciation is going now towards David Bradley for what he was able to um portray in this in this broken Geppetto who learns really how to love again and how to like trust in in, in in another life and um yeah by the time you reach the ending if you're not crying because of the beach storming you then you are crying because you're right there watching him almost lose his boy once more i want to quickly transition uh to you actually this is a musical what did you think of that aspect i loved it i think that uh pinocchio's first song so Okay, so it has a couple songs. So there's a song that Geppetto sings to his boy all about the love and all about their their family that they have. Tragically, it goes away. Pinocchio comes to life, sings a song that's like, what's this? Um, Not the Nightmare Christmas movie, but it's more of like a... um What to do with it? Like, you know, he is just starting to question the world around him. And comically, while G- Pinocchio is moving through his space and in this real world, he's knocking over knives. He's causing so many hazardous um, environmental effects that Geppetto's just dodging things to save his own life. But uh, I did appreciate the musical numbers that were in this. Uh, the second half of the film does include Pinocchio leading more so like war um, oriented chants and numbers. Uh, one of them actually mocking um, the movements that they're asking of these children. He mocks Mussolini in front of him. 
and then get shot for it. Um, also, out of God's, Mussolini is voiced by Tom Kenny, aka SpongeBob. Dude, making the rounds. He's employed. That's what we love to hear. Brandon, there is some time that we spend in like a uh, like a child um, uh, like training facility, and they're asked to like go at war with each other. This is where we get introduced to the character of Candlewick. Do you like the character of Candlewick? I was I was happy to see Finn Wolfhard um, show up in this film, but it wasn't until the credits roll that I was like, oh, he was Candlewick because I don't know, I just couldn't place him throughout the film until uh, the end of it arrived. So, how did you feel about that chapter of this Pinocchio tale? I think Finn Wolfhart is a little miscast in this. Uh, that being said, like, again, cause, you know, he's, everyone in this has British accents, even though it's, you know, it's Italian and it's, it gets very confusing, but like he learned to accept it. But like, I think Finn in particular is the least convincing of all of them, but there's a scene where him and Pinocchio have to convince his father of something. And it does actually feel really genuinely emotional. It had a purpose on a narrative level. I just didn't really find the character that crucial, especially when all the other characters I found had such peculiar and such distinct arcs to them. The same for me, where when Candlewick was introduced, it becomes less of a Pinocchio story and tells more about the mindset of some of these, uh, some of these children in this environment and how Pinocchio was able to speak to a father son relationship or a child and parent relationship that even like coming from a wooden boy was able to be felt by um, a boy on the human side. And it continues to, show us that Pinocchio is quote unquote, like a real boy. Um, that doesn't happen that often in the film where we're trying to look for reasons to defend that Pinocchio is a real boy. But by the time you reach the ending of the film, I think that the, the defense is Pinocchio is real because he was good. Like he did so much good that, oh my gosh, even like after Yang, though, it's he all tying have, together, dude, though he doesn't have a heartbeat, he brings about these real emotions and real change to those around him. And being good is enough for like, him to be deserving of life. And I use quotes, but yeah, I think that that's what uh, his portion with Candlewick is meant to prove. And much like that, it's the idea of, you know, we're rooting for Pinocchio, obviously one, because we know who he is and two, because we just like the character, but three, because from his perspective, like you said, with that original song where he's, you know, destroying Geppetto's, you know, work shack, he's also learning what the idea of good is. And when he's, you know, brought into that training camp and he's, you know, brought, you know, brought with the Candlewick and the Podesta, like, he is learning what people assume at that time is good. Like the idea of, you know, the value of the state and being a man and like that will make your papa proud. And those ideas of, you know, fascism getting to the ideas of young minds and like how easy that can be to assimilate those kids into that, uh, into that movement. It brings together the idea of, yes, this is a Pinocchio story about an idea of, you know, living and what that idea means, but it's also an idea about goodness and morality and like who is the recipient of those ideas. There's so much more about this movie I want to talk about. We've gone way too long. Um, for me, yeah, no spoilers. This is going to be my best of the year list. Nine and a half out of ten. This is brilliant. Uh, th- that's two movies this from this episode alone that might wind up my best of the year list. Um, I genuinely think this is truly spectacular. What Guillermo del Toro and Marcus Dobson, who, again, I need to bring up his name. He co-directed this and he deserves all the credit as well. Um, and the team, the army of stop-motion animators, who, again, I have not seen that behind-the-scenes footage, but... I've seen clips of it, and from what they were able to do with this, it's staggering the amount of effort that goes into this. Uh, Del Toro started making this in like 08, and the the 15 years that it took to get eventually get you know to this point, every second of it is worth it. Every second of animation is 
pitch perfect for what it needs to be. The design of Pinocchio is unique. We didn't get into that, but like the actual designs of the characters are all distinct and wonderful. The voice cast are fantastic, particularly David Bradley, who I really hope gets some kind of voiceover recognition from either like the Annie's or someplace like that. The music is great. And again, just the ideas of it. There's that any line that Sebastian gives where it's, you know, what happens happens and then we're gone. And I think that idea of life being precious really carries over throughout so much of the characters and so much of the stakes of the movie that it just really resonated with me on just such a purely emotional level, beyond just the actual craftsmanship and spectacle of it all. I truly think it's worth your time. This is going to be a 9 out of 10, and with two thumbs up, with two big toes up as well, because (laughs) everything was so good about this film. Uh, One voice that we have not provided enough recognition to uh, is going to be Christoph Waltz. Oh my god, I forgot about Christoph Waltz! Who plays Count Volpe, who is like the one who uh, manipulates Pinocchio into a life that he was not set up for, but then he eventually makes it out of. Um, You know the story well enough, but yes, I wanted to throw his name out there. So thankful that we have... uh, another del toro film to now rank within his catalog of uh the the mystere type of films the macabre and um yeah i i I really don't know what else to go into because there's so much that can be um defended with this film whether it's like you learn from the hand carved cinema that he primarily wanted to work with uh, mexican animators and bringing in um just teams that he trusted who he knows does good work who don't get enough recognition and that just makes the film all the more uh, greater you're looking for something dark but a familiar tale this is it and uh it's going to be yep the highest rated on this list and just speaking broadly looking at the 2022 catch-up we potentially like would have missed out on these films had we not done something like this so i'm very thankful for us to hold this space to be like hey you know we had our net of what we caught now what's on the under net where we like almost missed out on and there's there's an even greater list of the other films but uh thank you brandon this has been excellent and uh yeah we ended on a good one pinocchio is a a strong recommendation and that'll do it for episode 42 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in to our first episode of 2023, our all reviews uh, catch up that we you know, usually try and do. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Our best films of the year is coming very soon, as will our most anticipated list and maybe some other content as well. So stay tuned for all the shenanigans we're going to be having throughout the year and throughout January as well. Oscars are coming up. We're going to have to figure out what we're doing with that. But if you want to stay up to date on all of those things and more, uh, Twitter, Instagram at Plot Devices Pod and TikTok at Plot Devices Podcast. Go check us out on all of there. Noah, uh, thank you so much joining me as my wonderful co-host as usual where can people find you online and uh, what are you enjoying right now yes please follow me on twitter at noah's plotting um and right now i am oh this is what i'm doing i kind of got a new project in the works is i'm trying to kick off a bisexual book club so i'm trying to invite um my fellow queer folk whether it be reaching out over instagram uh, you can find me at guapo guzman or you can reach out over um tiktok i just made my own personal page remade it actually so that i can purpose it for this uh uh, creation of a book club meant for like um uh, queer uh you know readers it's called noah i'm him if you read it it kind of looks like noah him him but uh i think that's even funny but yeah i'm trying to start this book club where i can invite um readers who want to read specifically the first book is going to be um jen winston's greedy it's like the notes from uh you know living uh, as a bisexual and i'm really excited just to hold space for my fellow queer people to all engage with this piece together um ask some engaging questions and just foster a community and that's something that i did over the pandemic with a book that was unrelated to like queer identity it was a i'm thinking of ending things which eventually became a netflix release and so um I've walked this line before but now i'm trying to do it even better and with even more intention um to really just like you know build this build a sort of family so 
check that out if you're interested. Noah, I'm him on TikTok. You'll learn all about, um, I'm posting more details on there. Um, that's all. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. Our debut single wish has, has been out on all audio platforms for a while now. Go check it out. More music is coming soon, hopefully. And once again, all plot devices information will be in the description below. Go check that out, support us and however you can. And we really appreciate uh, everything you guys have given to us over the past year and a half. And hopefully in the future as well, again, big things coming up. Stay tuned for our best of the year list. It will be out soon and stay tuned for this episode when it reaches you. So for that being said for our second catch-up of 2022 leading into 2023 for episode 42 uh my name is brandon king that has been no this has been bot devices and we'll catch you guys in the new year